Good morning. Among Jesus' many miracles, the one he performed during the wedding at Cana sticks out conspicuously. His mother, unnamed throughout the Gospel of John, is present, and she has a much more interesting relationship with Jesus than a serene nativity scene would suggest. The disciples follow Jesus there as well, and a cast of anonymous servers attend to the guests at the wedding. The passage leaves many questions unanswered, however. What was the relationship between Jesus' family and the happy couple? Why invite Jesus' disciples? Did Jesus receive a plus 12 invitation? Why was running out of wine a problem? Don't all parties have to end sometime? What exactly was Jesus' mother expecting her son to do about it? Would Jesus uh, really have answered her so brusquely? What does it mean that his hour has not yet come? Why did Jesus ultimately decide to use up his first miracle by providing vast amounts of wine at a wedding? And what does it mean that the disciples believed in Jesus as a result? They're disciples. Don't they already believe in Jesus? Given all those questions, Jesus transforming the water into wine, the mere fact of it, appears to be the least mysterious aspect to the story. Indeed, in this modern world, the import seems obvious. People can't naturally turn water into wine in an instant. That would be supernatural, a miracle. And people can't do miracles. Only God can do miracles. Therefore, Jesus must be God. To be honest, such logic makes John 2, 1-11 rather boring. One concludes, well, there goes Jesus showing off his God powers, and then you move on. But in the ancient Mediterranean world, however, that logic doesn't work. People very much could perform miraculous deeds, or at least they were believed to be able to have such power. They were thought of as wonder workers. And in any event, John does not call this act a miracle. He calls it a sign. That means we are not to be awed by the action itself, but rather by what it signifies. It signifies that as a matter of first importance, before he heals or casts out demons or even raises the dead, that through Jesus, God is ushering in a new era, a time of gladness and rejoicing. I think we are hearing in John's gospel echoes of traditions preserved in the other three gospels that they describe Jesus' mission with. For example, in Mark 2.22, Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. In other words, Jesus' message represents the new wine. Now, old wine is just fine. In fact, old wine was often more highly regarded than the new wine, as it tasted better with age. But every winemaker who wants to stay in business has to make new wine, too. And the chemical processes that the new wine undergoes will damage used wine skins. So it is with the kingdom of God. Unless Jesus' hearers change their traditional dispositions and their ways of doing things, their hearts will not be able to accept the transformative power of God's kingdom. What the other three Gospels um, use to describe Jesus' message, here John uh, uses one of Jesus' actions, his deeds, to make the same point. We also learn from the other Gospels that Jesus was a fun-loving guy. 
It turns out that that rubbed many of his contemporaries the wrong way. Jesus himself calls out how his critics judge him in bad faith. For example, in Luke 7, 31-35, Jesus says, To what then will I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you all say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by her children. These critics, in other words, childishly chastise John for his asceticism, that is, his extreme self-denial. But they turn right around and then slander Jesus, who calls himself the Son of Man, for being a drunk and a glutton because he joined everyday people in their banquets and celebrations with a particular fondness for sinners and other outcasts. Perhaps something like the criticisms against Jesus in Luke 7 lies behind Jesus' reluctance to keep the wine flowing in John 2. It's not that he doesn't enjoy a good party. He just wants to avoid misunderstanding until the proper time. Of course, it turns out in the Gospel of John that no matter what great works Jesus performs or when he performs them, friend and foe alike will misunderstand him. Perhaps that's why Jesus goes ahead with his mother's request anyway. He might as well make his debut by showing his love for his community, the joy he receives from others' joy, that those around him belong to him and he belongs to them. In a word, his mother helped him see that it would be more misleading not to do something about the wine situation. As a brief aside, I want to make sure nobody misses the important role Jesus' mother plays here. The author of this gospel does not narrate the birth of Jesus, as the other three do, choosing instead to focus on Jesus' identity as God's eternal world made, word made flesh and his descent from heaven to earth. On the contrary, Jesus' mother does not give birth and then disappear from the story, but rather she plays a decisive role in her son's mission. The Gospel of John has perhaps the strongest theology of God's predetermined plan out of any New Testament book. But at the same time, because of John 2, we can truthfully acknowledge that, but for his mother's initiative, Jesus would not have started performing marvelous signs in that time and in that place. That's as lovely an example of why we pray as I can think of. Lastly, Jesus turning the water into wine recalls what the prophets foretold. They looked forward to a time when the long engagement between God and his people would finally conclude, and God will take his people for a wife. She who was forsaken and alone now belongs. This is how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 62, 4-5, using the promised land as a metonym for the promised people. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. These promises were uttered to the people of Judah after they had returned from exile. 
The thrill of returning from Babylon appears to have worn off, and the hard reality of the mundane has sunk back in. The people were still under imperial rule, that of the Persians. As the prophet said in chapter 59, they are still contending with their personal sins too. But the feelings of forsakenness and desolation are only temporary. The new name of the land shall be married. In Hebrew, Ba'ulah. Fun fact, a major road running through the Franconia Springfield area is Beulah Street. Ba'ulah. Now you can celebrate God's marriage to his people every time you go to the Alexandria Wegmans. <laughs> anyway, Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding harkens back to this promise for all of God's people. Isn't that worth celebrating? Thus, Jesus shows himself to be in line with the prophets of old, proclaiming the good news of God's favor and celebrating it with a lot of wine. Not only that, but he is also the fulfillment of the prophetic hope that the alienation between God and his people would be overcome by an act of God himself. They, we, belong to him, and he belongs to us. We're about to turn to two other signs of belonging to God and to each other. In a few short moments, we'll celebrate the baptism of Eric, and we will welcome new members into our congregation. Well, they don't involve quite the same production level as an ancient Jewish wedding, which typically lasted a whole week, the reality they point to is no less marvelous, for it is belonging to God and to a concrete human community here and now. The baptism recalls Jesus choosing water as a sign for God's blessing. Church membership recalls that we celebrate the blessing of belonging to God together for we also belong to one another. Most of all, the wine we are about to drink is the blood of the new covenant. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it makes Jesus Christ himself truly present here to those who drink of it by faith. It's party time.